This is episode 64 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Sally Ann Hines. Sally Ann is a fan of all things Jane Austen and is an advocate for animals, children, and simplicity. She is a lifelong horsewoman, parent of three, grandparent of eight, and shares her home with a boss cat and two dogs. They all live in a little house on the prairie, really. Sally Ann's novel, Her Summer at Pemberley, a Pride and Prejudice sequel, is a Regency coming-of-age adventure in clean romance that includes some of literature's most beloved characters, along with a new cast of friends, both young and old. Sally Ann is also an editor and owns Quinn Editing Services. Her philosophy is that we are all here to make a difference, and she believes it's never too late to become the hero or heroine of your own story. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horsebook. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to have fellow author Sally Ann Hines on the show with me. Hi, Sally Ann. Welcome. Hi, Carly. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you and talk with you about how you channel your inner Jane Austen. We were <laughs> actually introduced uh, through Susan Friedland of the Saddle Seats Horse blog. She read your books and she reached out to me and she's like, I have to know more about Sally Ann. Her book was so amazing. So thus, Authors Unite, she brought us together and here we are. We're about to have a really amazing conversation about what you're up to in the world of writing. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Awesome. Well, as everyone knows, how I love to start these interviews off is getting to the good stuff. Sally Ann, how did your love affair with horses begin? It really started when I was very little. I just remember having a rocking chair with padded arms, and that was my horse. I would ride it. And then when I started watching National Velvet, the TV show, I must have been probably... 10 maybe or something like that but that really ignited the fire of horses for me so tv shows tv shows and books are always mm -hmm. sort of what starts that and then we do our imaginary thing where we're riding you know the rocking chair or the rocking horse <laughs> or we're running around I used to run around with my dog and pretend we were doing showmanship so it all kind of <laughs> starts from there and then yeah. did did you wind up having a horse in your life as you as you grew into a young horse lover Eventually I did. My family was totally not into horses and didn't know anything about them when we lived in town. So we could rent horses back then. It was $10 an hour. You could go out and rent a horse for an hour and ride. So I did that a lot. And then eventually I started taking riding lessons and it, it was hunt seat lessons, amazingly, out in the middle of the prairie here where most people ride western. That really started my love of riding hunt seat and jumping, and it's always been very casual. But eventually, I did buy a horse of my own. I was a senior in high school, and it's kind of an odd story. Our grocery store was having one of those promos where they had horse races on it, and you bought a ticket, and then if you won, you could win different money. 
I won a hundred dollars and I was just shocked. And with that money and $25 I had saved up, I bought a horse because you could buy a horse for that much money back then. And he was a little paint horse. He was about six when I bought him. His story is kind of in my second book that I wrote. So I had him for those few years. Then I had another horse in college for a little while. Both of those horses, I didn't own a saddle though. So I was riding bareback all the time. You really learn balance that way. <laughs> so that was my first riding experiences. So winning something at a local grocery store that enabled you to be able to buy a horse is so special. And, and what is it about horse girls? We always wind up coming most of the time from families who don't understand horses, don't know anything about horses, <laughs> don't understand where the love comes from. It's just, it seems to be a, a constant in the interviews that the families are And same here. My family didn't know anything about horses and I was just horse crazy girl. <laughs> yeah. I've always called it my horse blood. I just have horse blood. So don't know where it came from. Although my Irish grandpa did love horses too. And he used to break and train horses out in the Black Hills when he was a young man. So that's the only person in my family that ever liked horses, really. So oh, great. So he he passed it on to another member. He must have. Yeah. yeah, that's lovely. And then, you know, in in you, you know, your love of horses is very strong. And then what led you to the author life? Why, why do you write? Where, where did that passion come from? In a lot of my other careers, I had to write things, nonfiction stuff. And I've written nonfiction articles about families and children and things like that over the years that have been published in magazines and journals and things like that. Finally, I just wanted to try my hand at fiction. And of course, a big part of my life was horses. So horses are included in my fiction as well. And that's the best way to write. I write what you love, write what you know, because then it's a little less you know, it's a little more effortless, right? Because you're writing about it. It is, yeah. And they also say, write the book that you want to read. And mm. so I thought, okay, I want more Jane Austen. I want more horses. I want adventure. One of my favorite shows is McLeod's Daughters. I love that show. Yeah. <laughs> Out of Australia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of wanted a combination of Jane Austen and McLeod's Daughters. Oh, that's lovely. I just discovered that actually during the pandemic on Amazon Prime. Oh. And there's like, I don't know, a lot of seasons. So it's, yeah. it's, a good, it's a good show to get lost in. And it's very wholesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a perfect segue. So tell us about your debut novel, Her Summer at Pemberley, and where the inspiration for writing this book came from. Well, I, I immerse myself in Austin all the time rewatch the films and reread the books and I always thought Kitty uh, had more to offer than what we saw she was kind of the really small character in all of the stuff there so I wanted to explore her character and I'm a writer who they call us pantsers I guess we write by the seat of our pants I don't plot ahead I had no idea what was going to happen with Kitty I just knew I wanted to write about her and I knew she was unhappy at Pemberley, especially after everyone left except her sister, Mary, and her mother. So I decided to take her to Pemberley for a summer and kind of discover herself there. And uh, that's kind of what led me to that just curiosity about Kitty's life. Now, did, did you have a loose idea kind of of the beginning and the end and where you wanted to take the story and then you let, let your discovery writing happen in between? Or was the whole thing just straight up? I don't know where this is going to take me. I knew I wanted a happily ever after ending, as is typical with Austin. So I knew I was going there, but I didn't know who was going to be Kitty's happily ever after ending. 
till probably three quarters of the way through the book. And I did know I wanted it to involve horses. Mm -hmm. And I did know that there was kind of conflict at the time about women riding side saddle versus women riding regular, I guess you'd call it, um, and how restrictive that was and how that mirrored the society for women at the time. There were so many restrictions on women, and I kind of saw Kitty as a bit of a rebel, and that had kind of been hidden because Lydia had dominated her life, I think, for a long time. So yeah, that's kind of where it took me. A rebel equestrian woman. I love it. That's like right <laughs> up my alley. And I really love this as I was galloping around your, your website and then looking at your Amazon page and learning more about you to build the interview questions. Your book description says, uh, this Pride and Prejudice sequel is the Regency coming of age adventure slash clean romance that includes some of literature's most beloved characters, along with a new cast of friends, young and old. How did you so skillfully channel Jane Austen as you wrote this book? Because your reviews are stellar. And, you know, Susan actually wrote a blog post after having read an advanced copy of your book. And she just raves that you channeled Jane Austen so incredibly well. Uh, that's not easy. How did, you, how did you get into, you know, get into that mind frame when you sat down to write? I think it's probably just from immersing myself so much in that world, mm-hmm. um, reading it, watching it on TV. I watch a lot of British shows as well, and I've just kind of been a sponge, I guess, and soaked it up. But I was really careful to, you know, to listen to beta feedback. I have a couple of really good beta readers who are total Austin geeks. That really helped a lot. I, I was really glad to see those comments that it was very authentic and it felt like a real story from the time. So. That is great. Amazing. And were there any challenges while you had to face while trying to write this? Because I mean, this is one of the most legendary women writers. And so did you face any challenges or did you actually in internal challenges or external challenges? Because I imagine some of that imposter syndrome might have snuck up on you as you're taking on this project. Did, Did any of that occur for you? Maybe a little bit of imposter, but since I was writing a sequel, I wasn't changing anything Austin had done. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel guilty about that or anything. And I personally prefer prequels or sequels. I don't like to mess with Austin's canon. I, I want it to stay how it was. The other challenges were to be sure that I had the dialogue and how people related to each other at the time to be realistic because they talked differently than we do. Even my granddaughter, she's 16, she did some proofreading for me and she goes, she read the first couple of paragraphs. She goes, this is from another time, isn't it? <laughs> so she picked that up right away. So that was good. I mean, I, I wanted it to feel like Austin's writing. You know, even the use of a lot of M dashes and some of the punctuation that Austin used, we don't use as heavily now, but I did use those types of things. And I, I used the third person deep point of view. That was Austin's point of view as well, so that we could dive into Kitty's head when we needed to, but then have an omniscient view when we needed to as well. But I didn't go into anyone else's head, only Kitty's. That's fantastic. And then, of course, I think you being the sponge that you said you were and having read so much Austin and and watching the kind of TV shows and just being absorbed in that world really helped prepare you. Did you do any additional research around this as you prepared to write? Well, I did extra research like about side saddles and about mm. women's riding habits, the gown 
whatever thing that they wore to ride and what those were like, what they were made of and things like that. And what shoes they wore or boots that they wore, quite different than what we ride in now. <laughs> Long trains and things like that. I don't know. I don't know how they managed all that. But and I did do a lot of research on the area. I had visited southern. I had visited southern England in um, 2013. Went to Bath. All saw all Austin stuff there, but I did not get up to Derbyshire. So I was not familiar with the landscape there. So I did a lot of research and looked at a lot of pictures about what's Derbyshire like and what's the land like, what's the climate like, what weather would Kitty encounter and things like that. And learned a lot about legends in the area too, because I include some legends in the book. I always like a little touch of mysticism. So I, I, I did include that. So that was some of my research as well. And then I had to research, since she traveled down to the Royal Mews, I had to know how long that would take approximately and kind of what kind of landscape would they go through to get there. That must have been really fun for you as a as a Jane Austen fan to actually do the research and dive into that. And as an equestrian, what the women are wearing while they're riding. And that must have been actually a fun project to do that deep research. It was. It was kind of like some rabbit holes there. <laughs> I could get <laughs> lost in those. And then I also did some research on the royalty of the time. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I did read three books about one of the royals at the time because I, I wanted to include a royal connection. And so I had to know where that person was was historically because as a real person, where she was historically at the time and how could Kitty have met her and what, what might they have done together. So I read several books there and a lot of online research too, and that was really fun. <laughs> That's a, this, this just sounds like a beautiful fun passion project that turned into something really glorious for you. I love this. And the story you've already mentioned is told from the point of view of Kitty Bennett. Talk to us about her. How did, how did you develop her character? I mean, obviously you've done a lot of research, but you know, how did you bring her to life? Well, Austin didn't give us a whole lot about Kitty other than her father called her Missish. She was kind of whiny in Pride and Prejudice. Um, I think she was very frustrated with her life in Pride and Prejudice, and um, she was kind of a, a, a nobody in her family, really. So I kind of took it from there. I have a background in social work, so I kind of knew personality types and things like that, and family dynamics, and I kind of worked with that, and that led me to identifying a kitty, I guess, and from there, she kind of led me where, where she needed to go. <laughs> how fun, you know, how fun to give her a broader life. And isn't it interesting how all the all the things that we've done in our life before we actually sat down to write our books kind of enable us to really take these stories to different places because of who we've been. It's a pretty incredible experience. So, and the horses are a very important part of, of this book, which is so cool. Talk to us about how the horses support the storyline. Uh, you already mentioned the side saddle and how the women were riding, but you infused horses pretty well into this story. Talk to us about that. The horses were really important because they were important to Kitty, for one thing, a big part of her identity that needed to come out. It had been hidden. It also served as a connection for her with Mr. Darcy because he was an excellent horseman. And then she also meets Lady Drake, who is an older woman and lady, obviously, she's of gentry. So she has some clout in the neighborhood. 
and she's a very interesting woman, rides to the hounds, which was unusual at the time. And usually you couldn't do that unless you were someone very important and then no one would say anything. (laughs) So the horses were important in that way. But Kitty also, I think, learned some of her strengths from her riding and from her horses Hmm. and was able to pull that together and kind of looked at horses like life, I guess, kind of. That's kind of a theme in both of these books so far is that riding is kind of like life and you can learn a lot from that. Oh, I love that analogy. So, so you've mentioned your second book a couple of times. Tell us about the, the second book. And you do have, you have that one there too. You have the author proof copies. Talk to us about this one. Yeah, this one, here's the author proof. It's got the band across the front. So you can't, you can see that, but it's called Love and Stones. It's a novel inspired by the works of Jane Austen because the heroine is an older woman stuck in a small prairie town and she's single, divorced twice, and wondering if she's ever going to have a happily ever after in her mm-hmm. life or is she just too old? Has it all passed her by? But she is a horsewoman. So she also learns a lot about life through her riding and through horses. There are several horse adventures in there. Some of those are built on things that I've experienced myself on horses um, or friends of mine have. So it's very realistic and I hope it's very authentic as well to horsewomen riding today. And she also leans on Austin's wisdom as she's navigating these second chances in her life. What would Austin say? You know, what would Austin do? What would the different heroines do? And then she learned, she learned some lessons from that as well. So it was a really fun book to write. And that's actually the first one I wrote. And then Kitty was the second one I wrote. But I decided to publish Kitty first because the audience was so direct there with mm-hmm. Kitty. Um, there's so many Austin like blog sites and everything. There's over 70 Austin blog sites right now. <laughs> worldwide that you can go on and learn stuff and talk to people and I've met lots of really neat people on the sites so that's been really fun too and so this is this is kind of a perfect opportunity to talk about independent or traditional publishing which route did you decide to take how how did you make the decision uh which way you wanted to publish your your books here I had always thought I would try for traditional publishing. And when I first wrote the first renditions of Love and Stones, I did go that way, queried probably 30 different agents and things like that, and just either got form letters or no reply. And I just thought, wow, this is going to take forever. At my age, I don't have forever. I have a lot of books I want to write and get out. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to explore indie writing. And I have a background as a graphic designer and a background as a professional writer. So I thought, you know, I've got those two things going for me. So I just thought I'm going to explore that and see if I can do it that way. And I've been really happy with that choice. It gives me a lot of a lot of leeway on deadlines and things like that, as well as cover choices. I'm really picky about typography and things like that. And I I would have had a real hard time if they had put a cover on my book that I didn't like. I do utilize a lady in Washington State who digitizes my cover designs. I put them together on pages because I don't have InDesign anymore. But so I do the idea and the layout and the colors and things, and, and she digitizes everything so it's just ready to upload. And that's been really helpful for me because it would take me a long time to learn all the new tools for digital production. So. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about your book cover and how lucky for you that you've got 
graphic design in your background. That actually really helps bring ideas to life with what's in your mind and actually get it on the book. But let's talk about this cover. Yeah, it does really help me because I'm used to making my ideas visual. So that helped me a lot. I wanted a cover for this because there are several books in this series. Uh, right now I'm writing Mrs. Dashwood's story from Sense and Sensibility. And I'm going to concentrate on the mothers and the sisters and the friends of characters in Austin's novels. So I wanted a design where I could use something over and over, but just change the colors for all the books. It's not really serious, but in this grouping. Mm -hmm. And so I hit on the lace idea because women did wear lace back then a lot. And so did men even back then. <laughs> and I wanted something would be um, a strong image, but yet um, not particularly each story. So each story is going to have a little different figure up here denoting who it's about kind of, and there'll be a different color scheme for each book. Color background will be different and typography background will be different, but otherwise they will kind of look like a set. Mm -hmm. So that was my goal with, with this book is to have something that looked like a set and, and that was adaptable enough. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with that and I've had a lot of compliments on the cover. It's beautiful. I, thank you. I really don't like the covers where they have modern people in a pose or something in front of a, a picture of an old house or something. The modern people just never look real to me. Yeah, it's beautiful. It are, it, it, will each book in the grouping, not necessarily a series, but a grouping, will each book kind of have a horse equestrian theme running through it? I see that happening. With all the books, there's going to be some equestrian theme in there. I think horses were a part of daily life back then, definitely. And I think the type of people that rode horses and understood them are the type of people I like to write about. So that's, that's my goal. I love that. That's perfect. And let's talk about the cover for, for your second book. Okay, here's the second book. This is a contemporary book, so I needed something that looked modern. Thus, she has the jean jacket on and stuff and leading the horse. And I wanted something that brought through the idea of a woman and a horse. It's, I didn't want, it's, there's romantic elements in it and romance is definitely part of it, but it's only part of her character arc. So I didn't want like a couple on there, or a bare chested guy on there and stuff like that. It's not about that. So <laughs> that was kind of a choice I had to make. Included the stones. I do actually have this heart's shaped stone it's a stone that I have that Aww. I found so that's kind of the idea behind this and I wanted it to be kind of generic enough where horse people would identify with it kind of the barn background and just out in the yard with your horse it's beautiful and and you did such a great job of matching your covers to the genre with which each of these books are I'm glad you have two examples so oh so great thank you yeah they they do have totally different cover requirements definitely mm -hmm. and you are you sound like you are you educated yourself incredibly well about the independent publishing process and used some of your background to make some of the decisions you did but you are walking into this fully prepared. You know what you want your grouping of books to look like. You know what you want your covers to look like. What, what did you do to, to educate yourself? You know, did you write the book first and then, and then you dug into figuring which way you wanted to publish it and, and then made your decisions? Like, Talk a little bit about how you educated yourself. Well, with the first book that I wrote, Love in Stones, 
I was thinking of going traditional at that point and had written the book. But by the time I wrote the book about Kitty at Pemberley, I had decided to go indie. Mm -hmm. So that kind of freed up a lot of ideas for me, too. I didn't have to please someone else's idea of what was marketable because I knew this was marketable. And I knew people wanted more stories about Kitty. There aren't hardly any about Kitty out there. And some of the Austin stuff is... Some of the fan fiction is kind of predictable, and I wanted something different. I wanted something that wasn't just the romance part, but a, a little more adventurous, I guess. And uh, I think that's been welcomed by a lot of people. They've enjoyed it. So That's fantastic. And then th- that leads right into the next question. How do you reach your readers? So what, what have you done to, to get the word out about, about your books or about, um, the, about the, Austin, the Austin book? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I love Jane Austen so much, I, I participate in a lot of the website type of things, Facebook groups and things like that about Austin. And there's lots and lots of them. One group out of Salt Lake City run by Samuel Keel has 35,000 members worldwide. And there's, so there's a lot of us in that. And then he also hosts what he calls the Meriton Marketplace. Meriton was the town in Pride and Prejudice. And that's the first Saturday of every month. So then you're able to put your stuff up on there and sell it. And just by being in these groups, I kind of have an organic presence. And when people are talking about stuff or they'll say, I want a new sequel. What's a good book? What have you all read? What's out there, you know? And then people will climb on and just say what they've read and stuff. And one lady (laughs) this winter was, um, actually had a picture of herself sitting in a, a coffee shop line in her car in the winter saying, I want another Pride and Prejudice sequel. What's out there? And so I said, I just released this summer, her summer at Pemberley. And she goes, yay, I'm going to buy it. And she just bought it right then. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that happens when you're in these groups. You know, mm-hmm. people will will chime in and say, well, I read this and it was really, really good. And um, so it's all been basically organic growth so far. And I'm really pleased with that. That's fantastic. And the, well, and this is the community that, you know, you know, you, right. you, you are a part of it and living and breathing and, and it makes it a little easier to, to get the word out about your book because you are, you are this, you understand what they want to read. You probably get great insights into what people are looking for, for future books in your grouping as well I'm sure that's like an excellent spot to get ideas and and do a little research too about what readers are looking for yeah yeah I'm hoping to do that more with the horse people too you know (laughs) because I kind of know what they want to and um, Mm -hmm. there aren't as many tightly formed groups that way I I guess on Facebook that I have found anyway so far so there's a couple that that you might be interested in if you're not already members there's a uh, horse books for grown-ups i did just join that that's a very that's a very active group and then there's also horse book addicts and those seem to be the two most okay. really uh active groups where members are talking and there are a lot of authors participating but there's also a lot of really supportive readers so those are a couple good places but yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome being equestrian because you you sort of also know where where the people are and what they're looking for and what's important to them and and I'm sure, you know, those kind of readers want the facts to be right when they're reading yes, about, definitely. about horse, the horse lifestyle. And I think that that was something that was really important to you that, you know, or it can set, it can set 
off the rhythm of reading something if the facts aren't right. So that was probably a really important piece of also not only getting the, the Austin-isms correct, but also the equestrian part. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to be sure it was correct historically in Kitty's book and then contemporary wise in the second book, because nothing pulls me out of a story faster than when they're talking about a horse doing something and I'm going, no, they don't do that. You know, it's like, ah, no. You know, now, now all the authors, we have to spill over into the movie industry and the television series industry. Oh, so they start getting the horse stuff right there. I right? wish they would. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you mentioned you have a lot of books you want to write. How do you get the words on the page? Do you have a special way you structure your day around getting your, your writing complete? Like, do you have any routines? Like, how do you make sure you get the words on the page? I'm still kind of struggling with that, I think. I'm retired and I live alone. So I have you know, no, no time commitments really to other people. So it's, it's a, something that I'm trying to work out to be more consistent about, but it seems like once I'm writing, I want to just keep going and I don't want to get interrupted, which is really hard because then there's daily stuff you have to do. And now there's marketing stuff to do. One thing that really helped me was joining NaNoWriMo in November, National Novel Writers Month. I actually wrote Kitty's story, finished it up during NaNoWriMo. And that's the kind of focus I really need to get my story onto the page, especially since I don't know where I'm going. So I can't just pick up one day and go, oh, yeah, here's the next thing on the outline because I don't have that. So I need to follow my imagination when I'm writing and I need the time to do that. So I try to set big blocks of time. Mm. I can't really work in 30 minute things. That's just me. I mean, some people can do that really well, but it's kind of my style at this point. Yeah. And it's ever evolving, right? Because, you know, because yeah. you're, you're learning and everybody writes a little differently. Like sometimes, you know, one way to write a book works the first time and then you kind of shift. But NaNoWriMo is an excellent way to, to get books written because it really puts a structure there. And, yeah. you know, you're meeting goals and you're, you know, you're challenging yourself. And uh, I think the goal is with NaNoWriMo to write, uh, what is it, like 1600 words a day and by the end of November, have a 50,000 word yeah. rough draft. And that's sort of the, the format for it. And it really creates a lot of structure around writing. I think it's a great thing to do and try out. And there, nothing happens if you don't have to hit the 50,000. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> nothing bad happens. No, it just, and, and actually you could wind up with, I've done it a couple of times. And I think where I've always wound up is at about 35,000 words. But it's always a great start to, to kick a project forward. So yeah, I think it is really good. And it's really good for first drafts. I, I, mm -hmm. I couldn't use it for revising because that's too um, uneven of a schedule, I guess. But for first drafts, it's great. Oh, yeah. It just, make, just get, makes you get the stuff yeah. out there and get going and move forward and not go back and edit. And uh, you know, so for you, I love asking these questions because everybody has a little bit of a different perspective. What has been the hardest part about being an author for you? And then on the flip side, what has been the very best part of taking on this author life? For me, the hardest part of being an author is trying to find a balance between the writing life and the rest of my life. Mm. And I tend to get very absorbed in the writing life to the exclusion of everything except my dogs and cats who demand my time. <laughs> but it is hard for me to find that balance and not work too much and get burned out. 
Mm. So I'm trying to find ways to either segment my days or segment my weeks or something like that so that I can find that balance better. The part that I really love is creating the world and creating the characters and then getting to know those characters. It's almost like they're real people Mm -hmm. and they are telling me what they want to do in their life. And then I am kind of like the quill in the air and just writing it down, you know, and that's a really, really fun part for me. Uh, it's such an amazing feeling. I, lo- I love that you have that experience too. It's like, it's just absolute flow, you know, it's like just, and then, and then you feel so good when, when you finished with a writing session and those characters have led you yes. somewhere, just, you feel like lighter or like inspired or connected. You know, I, I don't know how to. It is. Like, it's kind of like magic. It's like, wow, I was in that world and all this stuff happened today. Wow. <laughs> and then sometimes it's like, did I, did I actually write that? Where did that come from? You know, it's such a fun feeling. Uh, I love that. That's great. It, and then what's so interesting about you is you are actually an editor. You you edit other people's books. Can you talk a little to us about, I mean, which probably only improved your author journey that much more because you have this sort of background. Talk to us a little bit about what you offer with editing, how you got into editing, and why that's so important. Okay, yeah. I have a little company called Quinn Editing Services. And in my nonfiction writing days, working for small newspapers and small magazines and things like that, I did a lot of proofreading, a lot of editing, or a lot of hats when you work at a small publication. So I had many years of doing that. And I think I just have kind of a natural talent for that too. When I read other people's books, typos just jump out at me. I mean, it's like, oh, and if there's too many of them, I just have to put the book down because I just can't follow if there's too too many errors. So I kind of come by it naturally. I did start editing other people's books and I, I do certain genres. Like I don't do horror or things like that and like gruesome, but kind of specialize in women's fiction, Regency and things to do with horses or families and stuff like that. Those are my wheelhouses. What I do is I offer a free three-page sample edit for anyone because I think it's important for the writer and editor to work together as a team Mm. and to understand each other really well. And I need to understand where the author is going with the book. Mm-hmm. A lot of authors feel like, well, the editor is going to change my voice. They're going to change my message. Well, a good editor won't do that. A good editor is going to help you polish what you're saying. And it's kind of like listening to a radio with a lot of static and a good editor will remove, help you remove that static mm-hmm. so that your story can come through clear. So I offer the free three-page sample edit to be sure we're all on the same page and stuff like that. And I come up with a price based on that because I also don't feel like it's fair to price by the word because every project is different and unique. And I feel like if someone has a fairly clean manuscript and I'm charging the same as someone who needs a lot of work, that's not really fair either. So Mm -hmm. I come up with a, a unique price for each project that way. And that's also really a fun thing to do because I get to help someone polish their work and then eventually see it in print. A lot of them have sent me a book then after that. And I have several repeat customers. That's always a great thing too, because then you get a feel for how they write. They get a feel for how you edit. And Mm -hmm. it's a very good relationship that way. Mm -hmm. Editing. And it sounds like you, what I love is that you're also a writer. So you understand the, the super personal connection that authors have with their creative work. And I, I really think that you've summed that up beautifully and, and that you're really thoughtful about 
pricing, your pricing model, and you know horses. And I mean, uh-huh. that you're speaking to your crowd right here. So, <laughs> uh, but in the repeat customers, I mean, the the relationship between an editor and an author is become it can become a friendship because you mm-hmm. really do inter inter you know intertwine in each other's lives and learn a lot about each other and help make these really beautiful things come to life. So it's a very personal relationship. And I imagine on your side too, you have to make sure it, you can work with the person, you know, because yes. not, because it, it is so personal, you know, you have to make sure you've got that good relatedness before going into working on their work. So that, that three page edit is such a beautiful thing to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's very helpful for the author and helpful for me. I get to mm-hmm. see kind of what I'm going to be working with. Now, you, because you're an editor, you don't edit your own work, though, do you? Oh, no, no, I would not do that. There's just too many things that you miss. Um, I trade edits with other people, and I trade um, a a higher-level beta reading Mm. with people. I have a friend in England. We beta read for each other. She writes some Austin stuff and some other historical stuff, and she'll send me a horse scene and go, did I get this right? And I'll say, no. She goes, that's exactly what I need to know, you know, and she'll tell me the the British side of some of the terms I'm using and stuff like that. And she'll say, this would confuse your British readers mm. or Austin wouldn't have put it this way or something like that. So, yeah, I absolutely I do not edit my own work at all. No one really can do that. One thing that I do do, I write in Word and I use the word where it reads back to you. Mm. You can set it up to do that, and that is really, really helpful because then someone reading your stuff out loud to you, you can control the speed that they read at and everything. When you hear it out loud, you can hear the rhythms and something doesn't make sense, and I found that really helpful. And I have some hints and stuff like that on my editing page to help others save money on their editing. So the more you can do ahead of time yourself, the better, you know, and then it'll cost you less to edit, and it'll be a more efficient process. Well, that's amazing. And I'll make sure to link to your editing page in your show notes. So, so authors listening in can get directly to you and, and pick up some of those tips. And that is a great tip to also read your word, your work aloud, have someone read it to you, use the word feature, because it, it sounds differently when you're reading than when you're writing. So it's, it's another way to make improvements before you have your final product. And these days, audio is really taking off. So eventually you're going to want to make an audio book. So you want to know that it sounds well and reads well. So that, that was a great piece of advice you just offered there. What do you wish you had known when you started out on this author journey? Is there anything that you, you would go back and tell yourself before you, before you took this this on? Well, I kind of would have liked an idea on the big picture of the whole thing. You know, I thought, write a book, get some editing done, get a cover and you're good to go. But there's the whole marketing part, the whole sharing with your readers. There's just, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot to it if you're an indie author. And I kind of wish there had been a, a book or something that had big picture, step, step, step. That, that's kind of how I learn. Mm-hmm. I know some people learn just step by step getting to the big picture, but I learned the other way. So I need, I needed an overview and um, there really isn't a real comprehensive overview. There's a lot of books and stuff about specific uh, parts of the publishing process, but mm-hmm. there's a lot to learn. And then it's always changing. That's another challenge with it. You know, you, th- you think you know the systems, you think you got it. And by the time your next, book's, next book is out, it's like, oh, they changed that. Oh, <laughs> now I have to learn something else. 
Absolutely. And it's, and it is true, but it, but we are so fortunate to be writing in the time that we were writing and have access to the things that we have access to, because this has opened up a whole new realm for books to get into the world that isn't controlled, you know, by super corporations, you know, now, you know, because a lot of equestrian authors are told that our, their stories are too niche because they're about horses, but there's a whole bunch of people that love reading these books and now we can get them out to them faster and we yes. have control of the process and we can control our intellectual property and our cover design and all those great things but yes you yeah. are so right if only there was this all-encompassing thing because you do have to educate yourself when you embark on the journey of being an independent author and information is kind of piecemeal and everywhere yeah. which is why I hope this podcast is helpful to people writing course books because at least it brings some of the knowledge into one place and it I'm hoping it creates a community where authors are uniting and and helping each other out and this you know look we just brought an editor to <laughs> to listeners you know who knows her horses so which is an important thing to have so you know yeah but you're right there's there's a lot to learn and it's important to learn that so you do release the very best product mm-hmm. based on that conversation is there any advice you would offer an aspiring author as they're looking at taking on independently publishing their first book? Well, I would always advise someone to do a lot of reading in their Mm -hmm. genre and in other genres. Be well read. That's really important. And I'm surprised sometimes I talk to people who say, well, I don't read, but I'm writing a book. And it's like, how can you do that? So wanting to be a chef, but you don't want to eat. It's like, how can you tell it's good or not good? And what's, what's even out there. So I think reading a lot and then writing a lot and don't feel like it all has to be for publication. Just write a lot and get used to being able to have that flow come and kind of get used to that idea of writing every day, even if it's not for publication. But um, I think writing a lot and then finishing your projects. A lot of people will start something and get real enthused and they go, well, I have another idea. So then they start another idea and then nothing ever gets completed so they can't really have that that good feeling about finishing a project and saying wow I did this you know I got this done I was teaching a homeschooling co-op creative writing too and that was one of the biggest problems with the teenagers was they have all these ideas wonderful ideas and they don't go down this road then they go down this road and go down this road nothing ever got finished Mm -hmm. and then they would get frustrated with writing it's like well you have to finish them so joining writers groups is really important you not only learn the business but you can also get feedback there's lots of specific groups some talk just about covers some talk just about the writing Mm -hmm. some talk just about revisions so I think joining online writers groups there probably aren't a lot of in-person writers groups right now but a lot of them are migrating to virtual and I think that actually works quite well for writers because we're trying to you know share those things you can share them ahead of time so you can read stuff and then discuss it in your groups but I think being able to get some objective feedback and being able to decide well, is this feedback something useful or maybe not? I mean, just because someone tells you something doesn't mean it's true. But like if you hear it from three people, then maybe it is true. So mm-hmm. I think being able to accept feedback is also important. That is fantastic advice. Yes, finish those projects. <laughs> and NaNoWriMo actually is a great space yes. to take that on. Uh, so I'm glad you recommended that. Yeah, I always like to ask this question too. I mean, you, you, you are so interesting and I've had so much fun talking to you. Is there anything your readers might be surprised to learn about you? I think there's a little 
music thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. That's awesome. I uh, need a people, miracle. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people just looking at me would not guess that, I guess. Yeah, big Grateful Dead fan. Saw them in person several times when I lived in Northern California. Met oh, Jerry in person once. Yay. Really? He said, hi. he said hi to me in a little club. Yeah. Yeah, so that was my big fan moment. And then also, some people are maybe surprised at my age and what I'm writing about, maybe. I'm writing all different ages. I like kind of an ensemble cast in a book or a TV show or a movie or anything. I, I like a mix of ages and a mix of types of people, I guess. So I kind of write for all ages. I know some people think that older people only write for older people, you know, and you have to be young to write about young people. And I, I would disagree with that. I think that you can uh, get into anybody's head at any time and maybe even have a benefit being older because you've already been younger. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're young, you haven't already been older. So, <laughs> so I think maybe that's one other thing probably. That's great. And did did you always want to to write a book, or is this something that you decided to do a little bit later in life? I mean, was it was it always there, or is this something? Because I think it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. You can write your book. I think everybody's got a book at them at any point. It's never too late. So what? Right. Where were you on that spectrum? Did you always want to write, and then you finally found the time, or did you just did it come up? How did it? I, I think I've always wanted to write and I've always written. I have jur journals going back five decades of journals. I've always kept journals and things mm -hmm. like that. And I've always kind of had it out there as a dream, but it didn't seem to be a very realistic dream for a lot of years because I don't have any connections with people in New York and big publishers and stuff like that. And now with all the change in publishing and the indie opportunities, it kind of opens the door for a lot of people to be able to explore that and once I kind of realized that was out there, I thought, you know, I can do this. I can write this book and I can get a book done. And it's like a dream come true. I remember when this one, when this one came to me, the first time I saw it, it was like, oh, it's my baby. And I walked around all night just carrying my book because it was <laughs> like having a new baby. So it was really, really fun and definitely a dream come true. And I'm really enjoying being able to work like this. I have the benefit of being retired, so I don't have another day job that I have to do. Um, I guess my editing is kind of a day job, but it's at my time schedule as well. So it works really well with the writing. That's so beautiful. And it is the first moment you see your book is just like, oh, I created something that never existed before. And, exactly. You know, it's just such a, it's such a proud moment. And you've done a beautiful job in, in beautiful work and, and readers are loving this. They're leaving you amazing reviews and you're, you're doing everything right. I'm so excited for you and I'm happy that your journey is continuing. So you know, what's next? What, what are you curious about? I know that you've got the two books there and you said you're writing another one in uh, in your grouping of the Jane Austen right. offshoots. Yeah. So what's next? What are you curious about? Where are you going? How many books do you have in you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I have at least seven or eight on my list right now. Some are started, some are not. Um, I'm writing the Mrs. Dashwood story. That's the next one from Sense and Sensibility. And then I've also written the first draft of a, of a book, uh, kind of in this simple living idea. I really like Marie Kondo's stuff mm -hmm. and what sparks joy and simple living and what's important in life and getting down to the 
the basics that are meaningful to you. And after I had stopped working out in the work world, it was like, I have all these clothes and I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all this stuff. And I really want to really simplify stuff. So I did a lot of reading on wardrobe simplifying. And there's a lot of stuff about going through stuff and getting rid of stuff. Marie Kondo does a wonderful job of that. I really like her books, but no one really had a cohesive plan on what, well, once you get rid of stuff, you, you have to have a plan for what are you going to have, you know, and no one has that really. The few that were out there were kind of old fashioned based on woman working in office needs black pencil skirt and blazer, you know, it's like, a lot, a lot of us don't do that anymore. Even women working in offices don't do that anymore. So we really needed an update on that. And so I wrote that book. I came up with a formula. I used my design education and experience. And design is really problem solving. So it's how to work this out and make this workable for people. And it's a strong formula, but it's very adaptable to anybody, like any age if you're trying to buy clothes for your kids and you don't want a zillion things, you know, or a man wants to coordinate a wardrobe or something. Um, it's for people of all ages, all genders, all walks of life. The formula works re really well for everyone. Right now, I have some beta readers reading that right now. And then the first draft is done, but I need to go back and do revisions. So that'll probably be the next thing that will come out as well. And I'm really excited about that because I think that a lot of people are interested in simplifying their life mm -hmm. and just having and doing what's meaningful and get rid of all this other stuff that's clogging up the airwaves. <laughs> I totally agree. And that's amazing. So you're writing cross-genre kind of nonfiction, fiction, horses, Regency, you know, <laughs> like, like present time, modern time. That, that's amazing. And you're like totally taking hold of it. Actually, your writing style might work perfectly for the fact that you've got all these books in you that you just get immersed and you go like you don't have to stay in the lane. You like just like what right. you're doing. You can explore writing nonfiction. You can explore you, wherever the passion takes you. I always say follow the muse, right? So there's yeah, yeah. You know, follow the news and, and I love your advice on reading a lot. I mean, it's important to read because you learn from reading, not just structure and punctuation, but oh, yeah. words and ideas and all that flows together. So I think that's great advice too. Yeah. Sally, and I have so enjoyed our time together. Can you let listeners know where they can find you and your books online? Well, the best place is probably at my website, which is sallyannhines.com. From there, I have links to the various stores and things like that, or indie bookstores that will be carrying my books. So that, that's probably the best place. Of course, if you're on any Jane Austen sites, you'll probably see me commenting on there. So <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And I'll make sure to link to all those places in the show notes so people can get directly to you and to your books. And I wish you so much success. And I'm so excited to hear that you've got wealth of, of book ideas, you know, waiting oh, yeah. to get onto the page. Oh, and I appreciate your, the gift of your time. Thank you so much, Sally Ann, for being here with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on the show and getting to know you and all your listeners as well. So it's been great. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? 
gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.